I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Nico Watts. Nico is a 30-year-old father, Christian, and trader. I grew up with Nico as a childhood friend, and we've been loosely following each other ever since high school graduation. During this conversation, we discuss his return to Christianity, the importance of stories and archetypes for a developing mind, and why he wants his death to feel like taking off a watch. Before we talk more about Nico and this great conversation, let's talk about my long-form Sunday's posts. These are my weekly reflections on medical school that I've written from the very first anatomy lab to now on the precipice of the beginning my clinical uh, experience as a resident uh, psychiatrist at Lehigh Valley Health Network. So on June 9th, I published, uh, June 9th, 2019, I published On a Meetup and an Opportunity. This week, I reflected upon a meetup of my co-residents and an opportunity with a wonderful physician. I enjoyed barbecue with the psych bros, and I recorded an impromptu conversation for my podcast. And tomorrow, we begin residency orientation. Then, more recently, on June 17th, 2019, I published On a First Week or the Beginning of Orientation. And this week, I reflected on the first week of residency. This orientation week felt like a microcosm of the coming four years, lots of PowerPoints, a random day off for the psych residents, and a surprise start to a road trip with the baby. And so you can find all of these uh, written works at eugeneh.kim, that's www.eugeneh.kim. And you can probably hear my baby in the background. He's just hanging out in the backyard, groaning and doing his baby stuff. So back to Nico. Uh, you, oh, brain fart. So, sorry, it's raining, it's baby's starting to get a little fussy, so, and I know my mom's off doing all stuff, trying to take care of things. So, things are a little wacky in the background here. Don't you mind that. So, you can also find all the collected works of my writing at, uh, on Amazon in a Kindle format or on a paperback format. And if you just type in on an education of a physician or just physician education, this stuff will pop up first. Or you can read it all online for free on my website, eugenh.kim. So back to Nico. Nico is a trader, a Christian, a father, and a husband. (laughs) Before Nico dies, he wants to see his grandkids be successful and to have great grandkids. When Nico dies, he wants to feel like there is nothing left to do, to feel like things are good to continue, and to feel like he is taking off his watch. Oh, and also he wants one last laugh. After Nico dies, he wants life to go on. And in conclusion, Nico says, reach out to your neighbors, especially the ones you disagree with, and find a way to agree to disagree. But also find a way to listen to each other and at least understand why it is that you disagree in the first place. That is how we make a better world. I agree, Nico. And so as I mentioned before, Nico is a old, is a high school friend, or not even a high school, a childhood friend of mine. We began hanging out, I think, um, back in elementary school, something around then. Um, and then we sort of fade, you know, as, as childhood friends tend to like, uh, kind of go towards each other, wave from each other, back towards each other. Uh, in high school, we kind of drifted apart. And, uh, since graduation, we've, uh, held some sort of like a loose affiliation and watching each other do our own things and watching him become a father, uh, in the past few years with his first son, Julian. And, uh, when we interviewed his, uh, partner, Kelly was pregnant with his second child. And, uh, that's why I was like, Oh, this is a perfect time to talk to him right before the, right before the second one comes in. Um, but, uh, after, after he's had a good two years with the first one. 
And it was a really great conversation. Think, listen, like while I was experiencing the converse, while I was experiencing the interview, uh, you know, as the interviewer, I was noticing that I was very uh, wound up. I was like, I really want this to be a good interview because he's somebody that I've known for almost like two decades. And I was like, oh, I want to make sure I'm asking the right questions, and I want to make sure that I'm very thoughtful. And, and you know, he he is he's incredibly thoughtful. He's uh, thinks in paragraphs and essays, and not just in sentences and tweets. And it's really great to have uh, somebody who has that uh, organization of his mind and a, a, a philosophical background like he does. And so I've found myself almost like uh, getting in my own head about it and uh, listening to the interview now uh, for, for the purposes of editing and, and stuff like that and getting show notes together. I think I was like, oh, I actually did a decent job. It felt like I was doing terrible at the time, but I, I was really glad that it, it seems to be, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to this conversation a second time and even a third time uh, in preparation to release it. And I hope that you do too. It's a really great, he has a, a very well-read uh, foundation to his beliefs, and I think that they might may be unconventional. They are, however, uh, very well reasoned, and uh, I think that there's a lot of belief by him behind him. I also think that it'll be really interesting to check in with Nico in another five or ten years, and understand like how has the second kid gone through, um, and what has like how has how have his beliefs been challenged because. Um, you know, there's there's a streak, I think, of certain of ind individuals who have this very cerebral uh, understanding of the world. Uh, I think some ones that pop to mind uh, is in terms of previous interviews were Ali Musa Jaffer and uh, Scott Heckley, at least his first interview. And, you know, there's a uh, there's a real beauty to that very uh, cerebral understanding of the world. But I also feel like there was a lack of uh, not I don't want to say that there was a lack of lived uh, lived experience for Nico, but there was something uh, where I was just like, oh, I wonder, I, I feel like there, there will be a depth to his responses that will be different when he has had uh, more life under his belt. Um, we get into a little bit of it in terms of like the, the death of a, I believe, the death of a grandmother right before his uh, wedding day. Um, and that was, a, I think, a good moment of it. But I think that there's going to be more. more. More life is going to keep coming, and I think that will really inform and shape and, and really refine his beliefs uh, in a really beautiful way. So I should go check on this baby. I hope that you are ready for this really wonderful conversation with Nico Watts on death. It is April 6th, 2019. I'm sitting here in my Coopersburg home, and Nico Watts is sitting in his uh, Salisbury, Maryland home, and we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Nico, what are the four prompts? The four prompts are I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. Excellent. And how do you finish that first prompt, I am? I am a trader. And that's T-R-D-E-R, right? D-E-R, yes. <laughs> um, I am a Christian, and I am a father and husband. Excellent. So uh, this is good stuff. So let's talk about that first thing, the trader. Mm -hmm. So what I do for a living is I, I trade commodities. Um, I actually work on the physical side. So... When prices of things fluctuate, if you're a company and you own enormous 
quantities of whatever commodity you're moving, how do you not lose money every time the the prices fluctuate? Um, and so we take risk out of the market. Uh, we manage that risk, and you know, in some instances, we take risk on um, in order to ensure the commodity flow uh, is smooth. Ensure that there's price discovery. Um, and ensure that the market doesn't see more disruptions than is necessary. Um, this has actually been very, it, it's had a huge impact on me. I, I, you know, I started this as a trainee straight out of college and it's really helped shape the way I see the world because simultaneously it's very macro and it's very micro. We're looking at global balance sheets for um, I work in agri agri uh, agriculture, so I, I trade grain. So I've traded corn, rice, wheat, soybeans. And I'm looking at global balance sheets for all of these things all the time. And when you hear about, say, trying, uh, Trump is in negotiations with the Chinese, you know, we've got like a trade war going on. Um, I'm kind of on the front lines of that. That impacts me. When, when the headlines come out and they say, hey, the, the deal's going well, they've committed to buying so many soybeans i'm the one who gets a phone call from the chinese and you know we turn around and, and sell them soybeans um mm. and right now that's that's clearly not happening because of because of the political situation um in fact something similar is happening right or developing right now in canada where they um the canadians arrested i think it was the ceo of huawei and as a result the Chinese have cut off canola imports. And uh, I mean, they're heading for the same situation. But anyways, um, so it's, it's very big picture. But at the same time, it's, it's very small picture because you end up speaking with people directly in all sorts of cultures all over the world. And it's almost like a, a poker game, you know, where uh, you're trying to get as much money out of the other person as they are. Um, you know, everyone understands what's going on. So you have to negotiate. Sometimes you have to bluff. You have to, you have to do a lot of analysis. Um, but at the end of the day, you need to have the personal relationships with the people that you're actually doing business with. So you kind of get both sides of the coin. You get the big picture macro and you get the small picture uh, micro. It's, it's not like financial trading where you're just moving paper around. With commodities, you're actually moving a physical product around the world. And so you need to you need to know that the people that you're putting trades on with can can execute those trades. That you're not just selling twenty five million dollars of soybeans to some yahoo who's just going to throw them on a boat and have no idea what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like there's so much like in terms of like who, like literally like how does a thing get to another part of the world? There's a lot that it gets involved, and there's a lot of people that get involved and. Something that I was struck by when sort of leading up to this interview was just the the level of awareness that you have surrounding uh, current world events is is it kind of I was just like I there are things that you know about like the swine like the swine fever that I just like mm -hmm. I had never uh, no one had ever mentioned that to me and it was just like it's very interesting because by focusing in on something as as like narrow as soybeans it allows you a, a very specific lens and focus into the rest of the world yeah i mean everything's tied together um you know people used to say what does that have to do with the price of tea in china well today the price of tea matters 
if the price of tea goes too high, they'll drink coffee instead. And that'll <laughs> affect, you know, you and I being able to get our coffee. So um, everything is very connected. And I see that firsthand. Um, and that's, that's really one of the things that I, that I love is the big picture. I see it firsthand. I'm on the front lines. And it makes the world seem both simultaneously smaller and bigger. It's, you know, the human brain is not very good at scale. We're not good at um, multiplying large numbers, even though they may be simple. You know, if you're, multi if you're trying to divide 88 billion by um, 3.7 trillion, it's not something that the human brain has evolved to do very well. And so even though if someone said 88 over 3.7 or 37, you can start moving the decimals and, and doing it much simpler, but you tack on six or nine zeros at the end of it, and it becomes more abstract. It doesn't even seem real to people. But for me, simultaneously, it makes the world bigger and smaller at the same time. And you really get to see how the world works. I mean, from the farm to the table. Um, and it's also a very interesting juxtaposition between blue collar and white collar um, because of the physical aspect of a job, because I have to go to facilities all over the world and see how things are moved, see how things are processed, learn how um, agriculture works, learn how, um, you know, that soybean becomes soybean oil or, or biodiesel or anything, you know, um, you really see sort of inside of the sausage factory to use a, another old metaphor. <laughs> um, and, and you get a, a real idea of, of, I guess, how things work. And, uh, you said that you, you got into this business right after undergrad. Is that correct? Yep. Straight out of school. I, um, I started in a, a trainee program at a, one of the largest agricultural companies. Um, and they actually had a, a pretty bad reputation in the circles I, I, I went to school in, in particular. So the company uh, I went to work for was ADM. They have a few scandals in their, in their history. It's, it's kind of like saying you're, you graduate and then you say, oh, I'm going to go work for Monsanto. There's a stigma there. Mm -hmm. So I actually had one professor um, ask me, and she wasn't my biggest fan. Um, so, so just take it back a step. Um, I studied international relations, uh, with a focus on international political economy. And so when you're, when you're studying politics, obviously everyone knows each other's politics, um, especially your professors. It's really easy for you to go and look up what they've published and, and what they believe. And, um, and it can also be difficult if you have professors who don't see the world the way you do. Um, that can actually be very challenging. You need to learn to tread lightly in those circumstances. Um, so this woman, you know, she had formerly worked for the UN, very accomplished woman, very intelligent woman. Um, she asked me, she was, so she was the head of the department. She asked me if I had a job after college. I told her I was going to go to work for ADM. And she kind of tilts her head to the side and looks at me and she says, why would you prostitute yourself? And I was so taken aback by that statement because, well, for one thing, the fact that I was getting a good job straight out of school improved her job, uh, you know, as a teacher for that school. But secondly, I, you know, I found it so shocking that, so I'm, I'm doing something dirty or wrong in your eyes for money. Like, can't that be said about any job? It, it, 
it it was a really eye-opening moment that that you know people have these sort of entrenched ideas of of how the world works and you know i get it that you know there have been scandals in the past but it's really weird because here i am moving essentially food and fuel um to to really define it down to the abstract um and i you know i found it really hard to reconcile sort of those two worlds one where you're you know you're you're living in new england you have a very good job and you're so detached from everything that you use i mean you can't make it through breakfast without using products that these companies produce um it was it was very shocking to me the the sort of detachment there Yes, and it sounds like there's a like a, like an insularization as well as like when when you're telling me about this what the the process of being a commodities trader is like the the level of interaction that you have with these people like you have like as a psychiatrist um, as somebody in medical school like there's like I can be told that this person is from prison and they did some terrible things but they have a their liver is doing some doing them dirty right now and i it's like uh, beyond that like it, there's there's a level of like i just got you got to see the person and then there, there there's uh the other things don't necessarily matter or that it's you know like just interacting with the people is is very different from interacting with a group of people and i think that that's a very interesting thing to note very early on in your career absolutely and i think there's there's sets of ethics for pretty much every profession um i mean we've got them in mind the very first day you're getting a manual that says these are the things you can and cannot do there are things that you can get arrested for um, you know, you can manipulate the futures market. You can, um, you can collude. There's, you know, which is kind of like insider trading. So, you know, obviously there's a code of ethics day one that you get. And, you know, I was almost castigated by a professor sort of saying, oh, you're, you're going to be one of those people who goes and fixes prices. I'm like, nah, that's how you end up in jail. <laughs> you know, there was, there was definitely a, a, a real detachment that, I think people take for granted um, when it comes to really understanding how the world works. And because we're, as commodity traders, we're seeing the world move in a real visceral way, um, we're constantly reading news, news wires, trying to you know understand what's happening in the world, trying to understand why, even if there is no why, or what it's going to result in um you're always thinking about these things you can't really be caught off guard oh there's a drought and you know let's say south africa and they go from exporting to importing you can't be caught off guard you need to know about it ahead of time um so for to to go back to the example you made earlier um when you realize when you posted something on, on facebook that you notice the the flooding in in nebraska um that's something that you know we were monitoring throughout the winter is that mm. you're halfway through the winter and you've got record setting precipitation you think if this thaws too quickly uh the rivers are going to back up and it's going to be a problem um and so this is something that months in advance we're we're keeping a, an eye on 
we're already moving prices because we we know that that is going to happen because we know that there are going to be logistical issues and moving grain out of parts of the country before it even happens the prices are already adjusting in order to make sure that there's still a supply it's very it's a very interesting perspective on the world um just like the physical lifeblood that is moving around and only and also within within that lifeblood it's like you said like food and fuel uh soybeans like it's very it's very small and when you consider how many layers of 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 uh things that are moving around, it's, it can be very overwhelming to like really like step back and try to think about how many different layers there are going on. And I wonder, is this something that your, is this career as a trader, is this something that you envision for the, for the remainder of, of your ability to work? Uh, I would hope so. I mean, I, I love it. You know, I, I find it invigorating. You're constantly forced to think you're constantly forced to challenge your own assumptions. Um, there's almost a pride in being able to change your mind if you're proven wrong, which I think is something that's very different from what most people have to deal with. If, if I have a, a position on, you know, if I, let's say I own a uh, hundred thousand tons of soybeans um, and I suddenly get new evidence, which convinces me that the price is going to go down, then I actually need to take action. I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I don't, change my mind, change my position, turn around and sell those soybeans or find a way to hedge myself and protect myself. So I'm, I am forced to, to look at the big picture, to change my mind when necessary. And, um, and I think that's a different way of operating than, than what most people are, are used to. It is a very challenging way to live. It, it is. Um, I mean, and it's, it can also be very, it, I mean, it is challenging, stressful work. There are highs, there are lows. Um, and, so, you know, the highs can be top of the world. The lows can be absolutely crutching. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's, it's kind of tough to detach yourself from that and still come home and, and have a normal life, especially when your phone is on 24-7. You get calls in the middle of the night sometimes from, you know, if someone's in the Philippines and wants to do business, you're going to get phone calls in the middle of the night. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a different lifestyle. It, it, it does come home with you. Um, and it does, it can impact, you know, your mood for periods of time. Yeah. And so I, I want to ask uh, a question and then we can, I want to return to that idea of, of like, how do you maintain some level of barrier separation uh, in the work from your home? And so you see, so you can actually like, kind of like relax a little bit. <laughs> uh, and I, I want to know like, uh, what was just, just to ha- come back to this idea of, of the, the challenging nature of constant, of, of reevaluating your ideas and exa- reexamining your own beliefs. Um, can you can you point to a specific story or an example recently um, where you've had to do that for yourself? Yeah, I mean that happens all the time. So for for some, so okay, so a good recent example um, with the current trade negotiations that are going on right now between Trump and China, regardless of what you think of Trump politically, if you look at the big picture. Um, it doesn't take much more than a spine and a calculator to say, hey, we can actually, we can 
get some leverage on China. So, yeah, they they uh, they've lent us a ton of money, but that also means if we default, they're screwed. So they've they've kind of handcuffed themselves to us in some sense. But also, just taking soybeans for example, China is the obviously the largest importer of uh, soybeans. They import on any given year about sixty to sixty six percent of all the soybeans that are exported in any given year. Um, they've got a lot of people to feed. They've got a lot of fuel consumption that, you know, they need biodiesel for. And if you look at all the soybean producing countries in the world, it's virtually mathematically impossible for them to ensure their food supply without U.S. soybeans. And so you kind of know going into it, okay, I actually hold more cards than it might look like on the surface. And so you do have to... Again, regardless of the politics, you have to give him credit for standing his ground. You know that their economy is going to go into a recession. You know that our economy is going to go into a recession, that it's it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be fun. Um, but you know, you know that you've got this kind of leverage. With the African swine fever, this is a, a very interesting disease. It doesn't really have an effect on humans, but it is deadly for hogs. Um, which is China's primary protein source. Now, China has about, I want to say, half of the world's hogs. It's some obscenely huge number. And this disease is very contagious. It kills hogs very quickly. And most of the hogs, I'd say about half of the hogs in China, so figure a quarter of the hogs in the world, aren't really in industrial farming type scenarios. It'll just be a family has a hog in the backyard. And so it's difficult to prevent this from spreading. Um, Depending on the estimates of who you ask right now, because it's hard to get, um, it's hard to get hard, solid economic data out of China. um, 15 to 30% of their hogs have died. So you figure that's, seven to thirty percent or seven to fifteen percent of all the hogs in the world. And just to put that into context, fifteen percent um of the Chinese hog herd is about seventy-five million hogs. That's the entire population of hogs in the US. Just dead. So that really changes the the negotiation, right? Um, the first question you ask is, or the first assumption, I guess, the, the gut reaction to monitoring the situation is you don't tend to get reliable news out of China, especially if it's bad news for China. They tend to cover mm-hmm. that up. And so you, you're kind of thinking this could be a lot worse than what's being reported. Then the next assumption is, well, wait a minute. That also means that they don't need nearly as many soybeans, which means they can kind of tell trump to to back off you know that that he doesn't have all the leverage so whatever the scale of the situation may be it has an impact on the geopolitical situation um because it's because it is it's so big and and, you know this is something i end up seeing um that i'm monitoring daily and you know, it's it's like a six degrees of separation thing. You know, you have a good day between um, the the U.S. negotiators and the Chinese negotiators. They tell the Chinese grain companies, "All right, we've agreed to buy soybeans. 
they call me. So it goes me, soybean trader, soybean trader's boss, Chinese negotiator, U.S. negotiator, Trump. It's like six degrees of separation right there. Oh. Um, so it's, it's kind of cool to be in a situation where you, you know, you're, you're seeing how the world is moving in real time. And you've got this abstract, distant connection to the picture. But it does sort of influence the way you think. Um, it influences the way you see the world when you're, when you're putting yourself in this situation every day. How do I separate myself from it? I'm still working on that. <laughs> um, to answer your to roundabout way to get back to your question, I'm, I'm, I haven't mastered that. Um, it's something that I – it's a process. you got to learn to be better at it. Um, you know, I know there've definitely been times when, um, I'm having an ongoing problem and I'm bringing that home. You know, I had, I had one stressful situation that lasted over Christmas and new year's and that wasn't pleasant for my wife. It wasn't pleasant for my extended family when I was visiting them. Um, you know, I was, I was doing a lot of business in Libya when, uh, that civil war broke out. That was also stressful. You get a phone call at three in the morning, uh, Christmas Day that, oh, yeah, you got $20 million of rice floating off the shore, and it's being shot at right now. That's, you know, that's tough. That, that can put a lot of stress on you really quickly. And when everyone's sitting around opening presents in this, it, you know, it goes back to what I was saying. You, we have the two separate worlds that people are detached Everyone's sitting around in cozy USA unwrapping presents, and there's a war going on halfway around the world. We're so fortunate that we don't even have to think about any of this stuff, and I'm sitting there stressing out about it. Um, it's, it's not easy to, to detach yourself when, when you are involved. Some people are better at it than others, but it's definitely a process that I'm working on improving. Do you have um, either positive or negative models in that process, either uh, colleagues or, or people that you've worked with um, that, you know, model either good ways of separating or either poor ways of separating? <laughs> um, so the biggest influence on my career, the guy I look up to the most, he does not deal with it well at all. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's a very tall guy and he doesn't, it doesn't weigh a lot to begin with and he will actually still find a way to lose weight. It's stunning. So, I mean, he's probably like six, 360 pounds and he'll still lose weight. It's, it's shocking. So, um, <laughs> I, I think everyone kind of deals with it differently based on their personality type. I mean, we tend to have some commonalities, otherwise we wouldn't be attracted to the work. Um, mm. but a lot of people deal with it differently. I mean, when I'm when I'm healthy, I find that exercise can be a, a good release. Um, and you know, I've also, as as my family's grown, found that um, just doubling down and devoting myself to my family helps. If if I get home, it's not going to hurt if I just throw my phone on the counter, you know, turn it off for an hour, and just play with my son. It's it's a good way of of doing that. Is is being extra present for me is something that I find. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it sounds like uh, yeah that that nature of the sun keeps going around and it's going to light up some other part of the world, and so your phone can always be going. It's uh, and there, there's always strife somewhere, and that in some way you need to be cued in on it. That can be that is a very 
interesting proposition to do for the next 30 or 40 years. And um, that's just a, a very, like the, the idea of that is very challenging, but I also can see that being um, part of your, you know, the challenging of assumptions that you have is just like, how do I keep doing this a little bit better every day? No, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's always the drive to improve. Um, I mean, I like to think of things in terms of processes. And I, I generally speaking, um, think of life as sort of a path. And so the idea is, you know, how do you recognize what that path is? And how do you keep yourself on it? And that's, that sort of ties into the, the second um, I am, which is I am a, a Christian. Um, you know, I only recently came back. So, I, you know, my, my father was Catholic, but never went to church. My mother was a Baptist, never went to church. When I was raised, we never went to church. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I just, just started like uh, a year ago. Um, and I think of Christianity far more abstractly than most people do. And I, I think that's probably the best way to actually understand it. Um, but in, in the loosest sense possible, I think of all religions as sort of a, a model of reality that is to establish a framework that helps you navigate reality. You know, it's, it's trying to say, well, this is what the world is like, and this is how you should behave in order to have, I guess, what you might say, the optimal outcome. Um, what I find interesting about religion that a lot of people don't think about is if you take a, the approach of evolutionary biology, every civilization of a certain size has a religion. I think that that says a lot about people who are so quick to cast it away as worthless. Obviously, there's, there's something there that it seems that you can't have a successful society of a certain size without having some sort of common moral framework. And whether that's right or wrong in different contexts is beside the point. The fact is that at a certain point, there are too many people that you need to have these sorts of rules emerge. Um, and, and they tend to organically um, over time, if you, if you actually look at the, the history of, of religions. But, you know, for me, I, I think of life as a, a path and a process. And, um, and so the constantly having to change my opinions, the constantly having to reassess what I'm thinking about a situation. I think that's all part of the process. Would you describe the process of returning to church right, on, on, a semi, on, on any basis? Like what was that process of uh, you didn't go to church growing up, but now in your hidden 30, you are deciding this is the time to go back? Um, yeah. So you know, I'm a big fan of podcasts. Here I am. I like to, to be able to to listen to something. And, you know, like if I'm doing work around the house, household chores, or if I'm going for a run, um, I I think you can get so much done while also getting your brain stimulated. Um, I listened to a lecture series that a, a psychologist did on the biblical or the significance, the psychological significance of the biblical stories. Mm-hmm. where he was taking sort of all the theology out of it and he was looking at how the human brain models reality and how the archetypes within the biblical stories 
echo the manner in which our brain models reality. And that's not specific to Christianity. He drew a lot from Taoism, Hinduism, and Buddhism, and, and um, very, very different religions. But you begin to see these, these archetypes start to pop up between the religions. You're like, all right, there's, there's clearly a common idea here that people a long time ago in totally different parts of the world figured out what is what is that telling us um so so you kind of immediately take away the things that would i think turn most people off and you start to appeal to a new audience um i mean this lecture series the first set of it because he says he wants to do the book of genesis or i'm sorry the book of exodus as well uh but the book of genesis he did i think it was like 45 hours of lecture series and this guy he he did it in a lecture hall that was sold out for like 15 lectures. So here you have, and he, you know, he comes out on stage for the very first lecture and he says, I can't believe people, you know, would be here. Thank you for coming. I can't believe you have nothing better to do. <laughs> and it's kind of shocking because, you know, every week there are churches that are empty. There are all sorts of religious institutions that have empty seats where they're talking about basically the same thing. And most people, um, at least in, in the world we live in, the U.S., about half of people don't go, don't participate, don't think about it in any way. And yet here you have people paying like 20 to 40 bucks a head to, you know, and sell out crowds to listen to this guy talk about it. That's, I think that's an interesting phenomenon. Um, for me, coming to see the way he thought about Christianity, he would which really is as an abstraction. They're abstract ideals. You can't think of it as literal truths because at the time that these stories were written, you know, literal in the way we think of it didn't really exist. Newtonian reality wasn't a thing. Um, in general, he basically argues that there are different ways of thinking about um, truth. So one way he calls it Newtonian truth which is literally the universe around us, is that you've got physics, you've got laws of physics, this is what works, this is what doesn't, and that is reality. But then he has uh, a different definition of truth that he uses, which is he ironically calls Darwinian truth, which is that you know, true is something that helps us not die in the, in the most blunt terms possible. And so he says, okay, during the Cold War, you had Soviet scientists trying to genetically alter Ebola so that it could be transmitted over the air instead of through contact. And then they were going to try and weaponize it, put it into an aerosol um, container so you could use it as a weapon. And he said, look, if you create something like that, it kills all of us. It's true in the Newtonian sense. Like, yes, we can do this. We can do this thing. But it's false in the Darwinian sense in that we can do this, but that's the end of the game. And so the game cannot go on after that point. Um, and so he has this, he has this saying, um, you know, you always tell your kids, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. What does that mean? In the abstract sense, you don't think of life as a game, as a single game. You think of it as an iterated series of games, which means 
you need to get invited to the next game in order to really win. If you win and no one else invites you to play again because they were so turned off by playing with you, guess what? You've lost every game from that point forward. So you kind of have to think of things going forward. Well, what does that allow for the next step? It's the same thing with trading. I can make a ton of money off a single trade, but if the person I'm trading with feels like I screwed them, they're probably not going to come back um, and make deals with me anymore. I want to make deals in a way that has people saying, I like doing business with this guy. I want to come back to the table uh, and do more business. I think that's a bigger win than making a ton of money on the first trade and never seeing someone again. So when you start to think of truth as an abstraction and you think, okay, if you have a story that's not literally true in the materialist sense, the way we think about it, but the moral is true, is that then a true story? From that perspective, you can very easily make the argument that even if people's interpretations are sometimes horrific of these things, generally it's been something that religion has been something that is necessary for people in large groups to live together. And, and that's largely true. Like You need to have some sort of social fabric, some common bond around that. And so in that sense, the, these moralities, whether it's Christianity or Taoism, Hinduism, um, have a truth to them in that they, they create a world that we can live in and go forward. Not always. Sometimes people take it very, very horribly the wrong way. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really easy to look at uh, instances when religion pushes us apart while ignoring the fact that it's brought us together in ways that are otherwise miraculous. And so one thing that I'm thinking about in terms is so you're saying, or at least like what I'm what I'm gathering is that a lot of your interest in Christianity specifically was kind of turned as a result of this this, this lecture series, like a very intellectual way of, of kind of coming back to church. And I wonder also about the timing of it, because uh, you go for the first 29 years of your life, no church or not really or like, you know, kind of not not really thinking about it. And then. I think what 28 is when Julian arrives and then yep. 29 is when you start thinking about going back to church and then you're also, but also within the context of how do you, how does one perceive reality and how does one create a context and a moral framework for a brain? And I wonder how much of that was intentional in terms of, of wanting to go wanting this moral framework for Julian and your future children. So when you're at this stage in your life, when you realize that, you know, you're going to be a parent um, and you're basically responsible for another human being's development to a certain degree, you, you really start to ask questions of yourself of, all right, well, how, how does one raise a child, you know? Where do, what kind of values do I want to instill in them? And, you know, how can I give them every opportunity to be successful in life? Um, at the same time in my life, I was listening to this lecture series. And, you know, the focus was on the biblical stories, but it did pull from other religions. And I don't 
I don't think Christianity is sort of the, the only answer because obviously I think a lot of the overlapping elements between that and other religions um, are, are, are just as, as true. They have the same purpose. That's just the path that, that called to me at that time. Um, and so in listening to this lecture series, I came to understand the, I guess you'd say the, the theology of Christianity in a context that I could understand as true. Now with my work, I'm a very data oriented person. (laughs) There's a lot of empiricism that goes into it. So this goes against a lot of my nature, but when you look at say the way the, the human brain works, it's split into two hemispheres, which generally organize things as known and unknown as, um, and, and the way this psychologist categorized it was order and chaos. Um, and you see that theme echoed a lot. And the general idea is the right place to be or to, to live is right on that line between order and chaos. And so you take archetypes of stories that are, try, that are sort of distilled over time. And that's how you end up with archetypes. Is you have a bunch of stories that get distilled and all you end up with is, is just you know, the, the important theme of it. A common archetype is the hero story, which is someone is called to adventure. They have to go out into the unknown, face a dragon, which is basically a, a combination of all of our ancestral predators. So face the unknown, and there's monsters out in the unknown. You get something of great value, you bring it back, and everyone's better off for it. And so you have to leave the known or the the order. You have to leave order, go into chaos, and in chaos there are things of great value that you retrieve and bring back. Um, you see the same thing with the yin and yang symbol. Um, you know so. You see this in the Bible, for example, with um, two stories, one after the other. One is the Tower of uh, – the first one is the Flood, uh, Noah and the Flood. The next one is the Tower of Babel. Um, the Flood is sort of an allegory that there's – you know, of, of too much chaos. It's not that there was a flood because floods happen. It's that the people were bad and were unprepared for a flood. So when you're – when you stray from – you know, taking on responsibility and doing the right things in life, you'll be unprepared when the flood eventually comes. Um, and that story is present in basically every civilization that uh, that didn't emerge in a desert has has a similar flood myth. On the other hand, you have the Tower of Babel, which is an idea that if you have too much order or things are too rigid, they're doomed to collapse. You know, you need a degree of flexibility, and so. What it's telling you with those two stories is that you can't be too chaotic. You have to have some preparation in life so that when hard times come, you can handle them. And on the other hand, you can't be too rigid in life. Otherwise, you'll collapse in on yourself because life is dynamic. Life is constantly changing. So that's, that, that's literally from a neurological sense how your brain interprets the world is known and unknown. And so when, when that gets expressed to you, you think, okay, this, this is true. And it became something that I could think about more and more as I'm trying to think about 
how do you how do you raise a, a child? What's the right way to raise a child? How do I help them be successful? And you know, you start to get a little bit of structure. You know, you can start answering questions like where do, where do ethics come from? Generally speaking, they they tend to be organic. They tend to be emergent. Um, ethics that are forced onto people tend to fail. And I know it's pretty easy to say, all right, well, religion is forcing ethics onto people. That's largely true today, but the ethics within the religions emerged organically over time. Um, so it's sort of the same thing when when um, Moses is leading the Hebrews out into the desert and he comes up with the Ten Commandments. And they say they're handed down from God, but really during that time, Moses was like the arbiter for the Hebrews. You know, he was the one who was, whenever there was a, a quarrel between a couple people following him, he would be the judge. And he was able to codify behavior that was already negotiated between people and agreed upon. It just wasn't codified. So it, it, the, the, the ethics end up emerging organically, and you just need to put words to describe the sets of rules that we've implicitly agreed upon. That process is very prevalent in Christianity in uh, the Greek word is the logos, which uh, one translation is the word. The idea is that the word or language is sort of the instrument we use to transcend from chaos into order. So if you're having a problem and you're not really sure what it is and you have to think about it, um, you know, a good way to do that is to meditate or pray, which are largely the same things, it's just to relax, um, you know, just ask the question. A lot of times you're, you're too stressed and you're too clouded and you're not asking yourself the right questions. You relax, you let it run through your head and different ideas emerge. It's hard to say where ideas come from when you're in a, a meditative state. Some people might say that it's coming from God in that, in that time, you know, and that's, that's them speaking to you. In another sense, from the, from the psychological standpoint, when you're relaxing about something, you're allowing yourself to think about it in ways that you might not have thought about it before. You're allowing yourself to see the forest instead of just the trees. And that allows new perspective and new ideas um, to formulate. And as you formulate those ideas and you put them into words, that gets added to your structure of reality. So through a word, you transcend a loose bunch of ideas, a chaotic bunch of ideas, into an organized framework to continue navigating through reality. So that's like a neuropsychological interpretation of Christianity in, in two minutes. <laughs> and is this, is this I guess, because you, you have a very like paragraph essay way of thinking and talking. And it's very, I like it because it's some, it's some, it's a way of, of conversation that I don't come across very often. However, I wonder how is this, especially like when you, when you talk about that third identifier of father is how do you translate this for like a two-year-old? How do you, how do you get this, these kinds of ideas into that little squishy, soft, like growing brain? I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, that question came up in a debate between a very prominent atheist, Sam Harris, and a very prominent right-wing um, Orthodox Jew, Ben Shapiro, where a woman in the audience said, you know, to Sam Harris, like, I, I agree with, with everything you say. I've got 18-year-old sons. How do I convince them? 
and he basically said, well, sometimes he basically said, you, you kind of have to lie. You have to, and for kids generally, you have to put the ethics within the framework of a story. So it's something that will captivate them while still conveying that meaning and that message. And that's kind of how we get the emergence of telling these ethics and these emerged truths through stories is that it becomes the format in which you can transmit this information. So you do a lot of storytelling? Is that, is, is that like, Oh, a- absolutely. I love it. I, I love um, reading new stories, learning about new stories. Um, I love just the entire idea of archetypes, how you can have this sort of plot line that it seems so used. Like we, we tell the same stories over and over and over again, and yet we still find it captivating. Um, you know, the you could take a story like Pinocchio, and in a loose sense of the way, it's the same story as the story of Ra in Egyptian mythology, where he has to rescue his father from the underworld. It's like Pinocchio has to go to the bottom of the ocean and save his father in order to become a, a real boy, in order to go from being fake and, and wooden to becoming something real. And so there's an idea in all this throughout all this mythology that the the father gives you you know gives you an element of order but the father is simultaneously dead and so you have to salvage the you know the the ethics from the father but be able to bring them back in a way that deals with the world as it is now rather than when your father was in charge so it's kind of the same idea of the blind king you see lots of instances and stories where a king will be blind you know why is that why is that so common um you know again egyptian mythology lord of the rings in each instance you have a blind king you know and if the world is constantly changing you need to be able to take these these emergent truths and find out how they work in the new reality and when you do that this is where i think um where jesus comes into christianity you have to have kind of a death and rebirth you have to let part of the old die so that the new can be reborn you see this echoed in the idea of the phoenix you see this echoed in um in uh in in buddhism you and so there there is an an idea that you know you've been given this moral framework and how do you pass it on you know, it's, it's through this process. It's through sticking to the process, um, you know, telling it in, in the frame of these stories initially. Um, and and it, it, that's how it gets passed on. Um, and, I, and I think it, it gets fine-tuned very, very slowly over time um, as we ourselves understand the ideas um, more and more i mean they're they're very abstract ideas and we're really imperfect at executing them for example there's an idea in christianity that um mankind is created in god's image uh, i guess that comes from judaism because it's the old testament but from there over a long period of time you get to the idea of you know the sanctity of life you get to the idea that all people are equal i mean that's that's not something that's obvious to the unsophisticated mind. You know, I'm a very short guy. 
you can't say that I'm that I'm equal to someone who's taller than me. Um, so that's the very blunt way of looking at it. But then when you think, well, if everyone has an element of divinity in them, then it doesn't matter that I'm short or that I'm bald or that you're taller than me and you've got fantastic hair. <laughs> what, what, what becomes important is that we all have that, that spark of, of something that's inherently valuable in itself. Um, and I think that's, that's true is that every person has value and every person needs to be um, treated as such, obviously. I think a lot of Christians are really bad at, at wrapping their heads around that and executing that in, in real life. You know, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to take these abstract ideas and, and live by them. But it is something that while Christians might not be the best at it, the society that has been built by Judeo-Christians by and large, has embraced that idea and has built itself on that idea. So you see democracy, you know, everyone has a vote. We've sort of adapted that idea as everyone has a say, everyone has some sort of input into it because everyone has that sort of value. The idea of capitalism is that, you know, you're free to take whatever it is you have of worth, whether it's a skill or whether it's a commodity, and you know, you yourself are free to go and do with it what you want. Why are you free? Why do you have that sort of autonomy? Because you have that value in the first place. Um, you know, it's, it's loose ways of these ideas going forward. But I think the storytelling mechanism is how that gets passed on. And that's, you know, how I plan to, to help, you know, my children understand these things is first through storytelling and then secondly by trying to be the best person that I can because I don't think evangelism is the right way to spread an idea I think everyone finds it largely obnoxious if someone gets in your face and says have you been saved have you found Jesus it's like you're instantly turned off your brain gets on the defense and you're like whatever get away from me but if you see someone who's living a good life by whatever you define that as people tend to ask themselves what are they doing are they doing something that i can do you know if you see someone who's who's healthy and you say what are they doing you find out what their workout routine is if you find someone who's who's got themselves together in another way you know you you know people are people are generally interested in in what each other are doing because we're trying to find out if we can be doing something better um I mean, that's why we have whites in our eyes, so that we can follow what we're looking at. There's a huge biological trust mechanism in there, which if I know what you're looking at, I can trust you. I can know what you're focusing on. If you stand at the foot of a building and just stare up, it won't be long before people who are walking by will stop and look up and see what is this guy looking at, because we've evolved to kind of identify with one another, with what we're looking at, with what we're focusing on because whatever you're looking at must have some sort of importance and so telling the stories is i think step one and then being the role model as best i can be is step two in in passing on these values very good and so i recall three out of the four uh, identifiers that you utilized initially was traitor uh christian and fourth one i forget husband husband we're out of the out of the uh, we're, we're out of chronological order because that came before father. But oh, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, 
my wife is um, incredible. She's the smartest woman I know. Um, she's a veterinarian and she, she aced Orga. Like she liked it. I think that's kind of weird. Um, for, for anyone who's ever taken organic chemistry, it's some people like it. Those people are usually weird. Like she's incredibly intelligent. She's, um, she's very smart and she compliments me in ways that I myself am lacking as a person. So I think as a tandem life is, life is not just more enjoyable, but it's also easier when you go through tough times to have someone like that. Um, and that's part of why I think the the partner model has emerged um, is that life is generally easier to navigate when you have that structure, that framework of we're going to tie ourselves together through heaven and hell, through good times and bad. And that's how we're, we're going to get through life is, is relying on one another. Um, that's, you know, that's the vow that we made when we got married. That's what, you know, that's, that's, what has sort of emerged as the best way to to navigate life and stay on that path is you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. You need to have someone you can rely on who can also rely on you. And that's why I think, you know, having, having a partner is one of the most important things you can have in life. But most importantly, having the partner who both of you can reconcile differences and problems when you fight or when you go through the hard times in life you know obviously in this the world we live in today with the, the divorce rate what it is people are having a hard time doing that of, of relying on one another of understanding what it's for in the first place is not it's not there for you to give up on one another when things get harder it's for you to lift each other up when things get harder even if both of you are down in the dumps um and so i you know i think that's Obviously, the, the most important things in my life are, are my wife and my kids. Um, and uh, I think that, I, I, I don't think this, I know this, I know I can't go through life alone. And so I, I know that I rely on her and I try to let her rely on me whenever she needs me. And so um, I think that that's the best way to define me as a person is by, by what I do. Um, so, you know, I, I do my, my job. And then when I come home, I, I have this other role that is the most important thing in my life, which is husband and father. And, you know, you don't, you never get too busy making a living that you forget to make a life. Right. So, you know, that, uh, I wrap my head around this. How do I tie it all together? Um, That that ultimately is whether I like you asked if I plan on doing this job forever. That doesn't really matter because I think that the family unit that we're building um, is is the primary building block, and and that's how we're going to to navigate through life. And so yeah, I think that's easily the the most important aspect of it. I um I resonate very strongly with what you said, and um, I have friends that are. Uh, similar age as us, but they're still very much in the single uh, mindset. And I understand that. And I, I, I understand that they're on their own. They're, they're doing their own things. And I 
can't project my values on them. But I think that it's very interesting because to them, getting married or or even just uh, making the commitment of this is going to be for life, not necessarily the, the 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 act of marriage itself, but just that level of commitment is just the beginning. Like that, that for them, they see it as an end. But for but once you're on it, you I think it's a difference where you're like, oh, this is like a whole getting doing doing the whole thing where we like signed up together. That was just the start, and uh, to understand, I feel like understanding it on that level of like we when when you kind of like okay, we tie together, uh, that's just the start of this crazy thing. They think of it as an end rather than as a means. Mm -hmm. It is a means of, of navigating life. But I think if you, if you do it right, if you have the right relationship and the right give and take, if you can admit that you're wrong, which you know I have to do it at work all the time, that's been extremely helpful in my personal relationship is being able to say, hey, you're right, I'm wrong. Uh, I, I will change. Do you have any ideas of how I can change? This is how I think I, you know, I can try to change. Um, I think that that makes it easier, but it really is a means of how to, to navigate through life. Mm -hmm. But when you, you know, obviously life is, is difficult for everyone. That's like the baseline condition of life is it's a struggle. Um, and when you work in tandem and, and you create wonderful things, a wonderful family, it's it gives you the kind of it's really easy to say like oh all your happiness is just the same chemicals but it's very different getting dopamine from uh from a facebook like than it is from holding your child you know what i mean mm -hmm. um or from seeing them accomplish things you know it's 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 the I, I think you get a bigger dopamine rush the bigger the accomplishment and i fear that we're gearing ourselves too much towards small accomplishments. Um, you know, we're, our, we're, we're getting our sources of dopamine from, from little insignificant things because people have figured out ways of giving you just enough of that rush that you're still, that you end up being hooked to, you know, social media or whatever it is. And, and you lose sight of the big things that, that don't just give you happiness, but they also give you meaning. And that's what I think uh, a marriage gets you through the hard times. If you're if you're thinking that the you know the purpose of life is to be happy, there are times the happiness goes away. You know, if 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 you're building your life around the framework of happiness is is the end in and of itself, well, guess what? Now you have cancer. Be happy now. You know, life throws awful things at people all the time, and you know, if you're relying on happiness and happiness disappears because it does every time the shit hits the fan, you're not going to be equipped for it. But if meaning is what you're, is what you're building your, your life and your path on, then when happiness does go away, you still have this meaningful structure that gives you the, the drive to push through the tough times. So, Trader, Christian, husband, father. Is there anything else on that list or should we move on to the next prompt? We can move on. Yeah. How do you finish that next prompt before I die, I want? Before I die, I want to see my grandkids be successful and I want to have great grandkids. That's, 
Get interesting. C- carry on. Carry on. There's a there's a, a great little saying. I don't know where it comes from, but it, and it's like you can raise your kids and spoil your grandkids, or you can spoil your kids and raise your grandkids. And I I think that that says a lot. Um, that there. So there's an interesting word in the beginning of the the biblical story of the flood and I'm, I'm a big nerd about the the words like what what they come from what what the greek is uh or whatever language it was originally written in to better understand the meaning of, of what's being said where they're describing noah and they say that he's perfect in his generations and it's kind of a, an idea to to grasp or that he was a righteous man in his generations the idea is if you if you live in a certain way, you will instill values in your children so strongly that they'll be able to pass on those values themselves, and there will be a continuation of that. And that's not in the, you know, in the first dimension of sort of like, you know, oh, you're going to like this type of car and you're going to eat red meat. That's not what I mean by values. What I mean is the the bigger, more abstract sense of, you know, how do we know right and wrong? How do we come to make our decisions? How do we even know what is real? Um, when you pass those on, I think in the right way, assuming they're the right values, which goes back to that whole uh, death and rebirth thing. If you find out you're wrong about something, you got to let it go. If you pass them on in the right way, they will propagate. It's like the, the notion of an abstract good. We don't know exactly what is good all the time but we know that good is good and bad is bad regardless of oftentimes if you do something that you know is bad and no one sees you you're going to feel guilty about it because good is good regardless of that so so we know there is something good and you got to fumble towards it blindly and i want to pass on the tools to um before i die the tools to my kids to continue fumbling towards whatever is good. And I want to know that they've also succeeded in passing that on to the next generation. I think that's, that's really the best measure of success and the best way of leaving an impact or an imprint is, does it pass on through the generations? Does, does the, the ability to, to be a good person get passed on? Is that what I managed to teach my kids? Mm. I like the longer term view that you have. The thing that I was thinking about when you initially responded was the ability to see great grandchildren depends on the breeding age of your children and their children. And that's a lot that's out of your, you know, like if they have their kids when they're 30, you're going to be 60 when you get your grandkids, your grandkids, and then you're going to be nine, you know, like it's, it kind of the spacing of those generations is, um, is, is challenging because I have a friend who uh, his mom had him when he was 40 and she wants grandkids. And that's really challenging. If she want, if you, if you breed at that age, you're, you're almost excluding the poss- you're excluding the possibility of great grandchildren and you're making it very, very questionable about grandchildren. And so it's just, I, I wonder about that part, you know, uh, just that age. Yeah. You can't control it. You can't mm-hmm. control it. It is out of control. Uh, it, you know, if I can divert for just a minute, a great story, my wife and I, you know, 
being a vet, we had a ton of student debt. The idea was we were going to wait to pay down the debt and then have kids. Um, one night I was in New York City for a business dinner, uh, which those things tend to involve a lot of drinking. Around eight o'clock, everyone's phone starts to blow up. So you think something geopolitical happened. Everyone looks at their phone. Oh my God, England just voted to leave the European. It was the night of Brexit. One guy at the end of the table just yells, oh my God, I've got property in London. I mean, he's not having a good night, right? I mean, you look at the Great British Pound, he's not having a good night. Many hours and many drinks later, you know, his wife is pregnant. He's asking me, I'm saying, oh, well, we're going to wait, pay off the debt to have kids. And he goes, look at me. I just lost 10% of everything I just saved up. If you wait for money, you're waiting for the wrong reasons and you'll never be ready. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, that's, that's not the important thing. Time is, is the important thing. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. What am I waiting for? So I missed the, the last train. He gets me an Uber from, I think it was 42nd Street where Grand Central is, all the way up to my house in Connecticut. Um, and I'd love to see that Uber receipt. <laughs> <laughs> I get home at 5.30 in the morning, wasted drunk, crawl into bed. And I tell my wife, I changed my mind. Let's have a baby. <laughs> get the hell away from me. Like, go sleep on the, get out of here. The, the next morning, she's like, were you serious? Or were you just trying to get my baby? I'm like, nope, I'm absolutely serious. Let's have a baby. Two months later, she was pregnant. So, mm. you know, that's that's an example of changing my mind on a big thing <laughs> like that and and sticking to it is is that he was absolutely right that money isn't the important thing. Money can disappear in the blink of an eye. And so if that's what you're what you're waiting for, you're waiting for the wrong reasons and you're gonna be waiting much longer. Mm. Yeah, waiting for those numbers to turn from uh, red to black. That's a weird game when you're talking about <laughs> biological age. It's a, it's a very, that's a good story. And, um, and yeah, I think. Like you said, you can't control everything in life. So, uh, yeah, I might not see my grandkids. Uh, I might not see great grandkids, but that's what I'd like. Mm -hmm. That's what I'd like. That's what I think would, would be meaningful to me and would be a sign to me that, um I've accomplished what I set out to do, to, to live along this, this path of thinking of life as a path. I think that's the idea that you, you manage to stick to it well enough. Mm. Do you have an imagination about how many children you would like to have? <laughs> uh, probably more than my wife would like to have. Um, <laughs> heck, I'd, I'd love to have as many as possible. Um, that's obviously much harder to do. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I don't think, I, I don't want to think of it in terms of limits. I'd like to have as many as possible. Um, but I mean, we'll probably be pragmatic at some point and say, holy cow, let's, let's uh, slow down or, or call it a day. Um, as we speak right now, you're, you're aware my wife is pregnant. Her due date was last Monday. So, you know, this baby could come along and I could say, my hands are full. That's enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I'm just going to kind of let life uh, see where life takes me on that one. Mm. And I wonder how has the, um, cause I think the, the binary shift from zero to one is the, 
is big, but then the shift from one to two is also big. And I think, you know, from two to three, it's like, you're, everything's wacky anyway. So, you know, but I think that shift from one to two is interesting. Like how has the, this, this second pregnancy gone uh, compared to the first and like, how has your relationship to just the whole, uh, this whole idea of child rearing and um, this whole idea of like, Oh, we're getting ready for this other kid to come. Well, when you have kid number one, your life changes in a ton of ways, but one of them is, or one of them in which it should change, not everyone's perfect, is that you need to be more selfless. You need to be more considerate. You need to think about what's best for and how do you take care of this other person. Um, and so going, you know, the, the first pregnancy when there is no kid in the picture, it's mostly about, all right, well, how can take care of my wife to help her get through this now it's oh we got to make sure we're feeding the kids um so obviously you have to be uh more on top of it you have to be more focused you have to take on responsibilities she's usually pregnant so i'm like you know what i'm gonna do bedtime every night i'm all the bath times i'm gonna cook all the meals um you know you, you take on that extra burden of responsibility um because your hands are twice as full (laughs) <laughs> but in some senses, I, I also think, and and this is pure speculation because the second baby hasn't arrived yet. <laughs> it's it's a very different game taking care of a newborn than it is taking care of a toddler. Um, so I think there are some ways you can balance it. A toddler can can play by themselves. You know, you, you can give them some unstructured um, t- ways to play and explore, and you know that. You, I think that's how you have to sort of balance those things is, um, you know, my son's going to have to be a little bit more independent. Um, and, you know, I'm also going to have to to double down and work twice as hard at making sure that I, even though he has to be more independent, that he still knows that he is loved and, and needed. Um, you know, we've been... For the last few months, we've been giving him jobs. So we make him throw away his own diapers where he lifts the thing of the diaper genie and throws his own diaper away. We make him set the table one dish at a time. He hasn't broken any dishes yet, which is amazing, but we haven't set the table. So we're giving him something to feel important about so that when the next baby comes, we still need his help setting the table. We're going to have twice as many diapers that need to be thrown away. He's going to have, the idea is that we've, we've given him something to do where he will feel that he is needed and that he is important so that, you know, hopefully when, when this baby comes, he doesn't take it too hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. So you want to see your grandchildren successful and see your great, great grandchildren. Um, Is there anything else on that list of before I die? I think that's, that's really the, that's the goalpost. That's the the goal I'm aiming at. It's a good one. How do you finish that next prompt? When I die, I want. When I die, I want. I want to feel like there's nothing left to do. Um, it's, it's really easy to be like, oh, before I die, I want to do all these things. But in truth, like if someone told you tomorrow that you had six months to live, there are so many things you wouldn't be able to do because you hadn't been preparing to do them over time. 
and they take time to do, you know, to learn to play an instrument or, you know, there are things that, that take a lot of time. And so if I'm being honest with myself and I'm thinking of life as a, as a process and as a path, if I'm following that path correctly, as, as I perceive it, then when the time comes to go, um, things will, you know, come good times or bad times the tools will be there and the people I leave behind to, to, to keep, keep things going. And so, you know, I, I don't think anything happens overnight. So by when I do get there and when I do die, I want to have done the things that leave me with no regrets. It's really easy to say, Oh, I want to have no regrets. Um, but <laughs> it's a lot harder to actually put that in practice be like, Hey, why'd you never get around to, you know, learning how to do this, that, or the other. It's, it's a process. You gotta, you gotta take everything in steps. You gotta find time to do these things. And so, um, you know, before I die, my goal is very family oriented. Um, and I don't want to be in a position when I die that I feel like the most important thing to me in life is going to fall apart as, as soon as I'm gone. And so, yeah, when I die, I want to feel like things are good to continue. Mm, that you've put in, you've done that work all, all along and that things can keep rolling along and growing as they should be. Absolutely. I mean, when you're, when you're building a building, you have to support it. It can't stand on its own at first, but as you begin to, you know, flesh it out and finish the framework, it will stand on its own and eventually it will withstand storms. So you want to have build the kind of thing that when your time is up and when you're done, you can step back and say, this thing will withstand a storm. I think that's, that's how I, I'd like to feel when I die. Have you considered what that moment of transition from life to death will look like or feel like? I would love for it to be something like secondhand lions. Never seen it. It's a great, you'll feel like you made a friend by the end of the movie. It's a kid's <laughs> movie, but it's a great movie. Uh, this little boy is living with two grandfathers. And uh, I mean, I don't want to, ruin the ending but the way the the two of them go out is they're trying to fly through a barn upside down on an airplane and they crash into it because they're they're crazy adventurers like that i'd love for it to be something romantic and crazy like that um but you know who knows who knows uh i i obviously i don't think i'd i'd like it to be any different than what most people would want would want it to be peaceful would want to be surrounded by loved ones um, so I, you know, I think in the, in the grand scheme of the many different ways to go, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd like life to be a little gentle on me. Mm. And so I, I'm, so when you're talking about this, I'm hearing a lot of this is still before the death, like the, you, like the trend, like even if you're in the airplane flying into a barn upside down, that's still before you die, but that's not the actual moment of transition of like, of, of, do you have any experiences or any conception of what it will be like when you die? I want it to feel like taking off your watch. <clears throat> So, um, 
when you that's yeah when i die i want it to feel like taking off your watch you don't need to know what time it is you've got nowhere to be you've got nothing to do and you can just let go mm. um you know when you uh, you're never supposed to wear a watch to a black tie event to a tuxedo event because that implies you have somewhere else to go like at a wedding if you're wearing tuxedos if it's black tie people don't really adhere to it anymore but the formality is don't wear a watch because it implies you have somewhere to be so like when I when I do come home and, and in the rare times that I do turn off my phone and leave work behind me, I want it to feel like that of, of I'm comfortable letting go. Is that I, I don't have that worry in the back of my head. Well, what if someone calls or something like that? Is I want it to feel. I, I want to feel like I'm the one letting go. Whether I be, despite the fact that I have no control over the time or how it happens. I don't want to feel like I have something that I need to cling on to. I want to feel comfortable in relaxing my grip and let it. So a question that I have for you with the with Julian as a two-year-old and your spouse pregnant right now is can you even imagine being able to take your watch off? Right now? Any even in the near future. And you know, because that you're you know, you're thinking grandkids, great-grandchildren, but like and there's a lot, there's a lot of time between those, right? And so in that, in that was a time when, you know, maybe Julian's an adolescent and, you know, other kids are, you know, like, where, where does that watch, when, when are you comfortable to take that watch off? When the time is right. I mean, if you are thinking of it as a process, it doesn't stop. It never stops. It's something you're always working on, but that doesn't mean that you're not willing to, to stop prematurely. If I were to die tomorrow, I would like to think that I've laid some sort of foundation that even not knowing his father, that I would have some sort of impact, whether it's on how my wife would choose to go on with life, that that would still be able to accomplish that goal. And I try to live that way. Um, so that if you know she tells stories of what your father was like, maybe that can be inspiring. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's not something that you don't take off your watch voluntarily when it comes to life in most cases. Um, but I'd like to think I'm trying to live in a way right now that if I died tomorrow, um, there would be something there to continue on towards that final goal that I want before I die. Have there been any deaths that have affected you greatly? Yeah, there've been a few. We had a classmate, you and I, who passed away who uh, was a very good friend of mine in high school. And that was a an eye-opening moment. Uh, he was 20 at the time. And uh you don't you don't think about death really when you're when you're young. Um you don't think about your own mortality. Um and you know that'll do it really fast is that you start to think of your own mortality. Um, we have a, a family friend who was sort of like a grandmother. She passed away and um, it was right before my wedding. She was actually, she's Chilean. She was scheduled to come up for the wedding and right before um, she passed away, she was in waiting for um 
a medical procedure in, in Chile. Um, they have a, a medical system that, that causes longer waits than ours. And um, unfortunately, they weren't able to get to her uh, in time for something that would be fairly routine over here. And, uh, you know, it was the sort of thing where you, when you have these big landmark moments, you always imagine in your mind what it's going to be like. Um, you know, when you think of, uh, you know, when you say, oh, when I graduate, this is what it's going to be like in your head versus what reality ends up delivering. Or when I'm a parent, this is what it's going to be like versus what reality delivers. And when you picture your wedding and someone disappears from the picture at the last moment, um, yeah, you, you definitely feel that, that emptiness, that void, that loss in a, in a different way. And now every time I go back to my wedding pictures and she's not there, um, I'm reminded of that void. Uh, it's it's something that whenever I look back at those pictures, I'll I'll notice. Have you um, been in the presence of anyone or anything making the transition from life to death? Fortunately, no. Um, I I say fortunately because with you know with with the way life has shaped out for me. Um, you know, I'm not in the medical profession, so it's not something that I'm going to witness on a regular basis, but some people will and grow more accustomed to it. So, um, you know, we're, we're insanely lucky to live in a time that we do. The world can become pretty horrible pretty quickly. It can get out of control really quickly. And we're unfathomably fortunate to have inherited um the world as it is today so fortunately no mm. is there anything else that you want when you die um other than to there's nothing left to do or um as well as feeling like taking a watch off I think I'd like one last laugh. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll put a practical joke in my will or something. Excellent. Excellent. How do you finish that final prompt? After I die, I want. After I die, I want life to go on. And this kind of ties back into, you know, the, the other prompt and, and how I see the world as, you know, a path and a process. Um. You know, I, obviously it would be wonderful to go somewhere where you can hang out with the people that you loved in this life, Valhalla, so to speak, where the, the beer flows like wine. Um, but I, you know, I have no idea what comes next. Um, I, I don't think anyone does for sure. Um, but for the things that I do know, exist the things that i do know are real um you know i want them to to continue to exist and to continue to be real so to speak. I, I want that that darwinian truth that life will go on that nothing i did will contribute to the end of life for everything and everyone else that the way i try to live my life death continues after me 
continues to have uh, an influence and you know, continues to to shape the way that people live. And and you know, I don't need a statue to be built. I just I just need to have faith that if I teach my kids and they teach their kids, it's that it's that teaching of how do you change your mind? How do you figure out when you're wrong? How do you figure out when you're off the path or when something something isn't clicking? The way you're trying to construe the world isn't jiving with what you're actually seeing. And you need to recognize that, okay, my model of reality has a problem in it. You're the, you're suddenly you find yourself in the situation of being the blind king. How do I get my eyesight back? And so you know, if I'm if I'm conceptualizing that process after I'm gone, I'd like that that process to go on. And do you have any idea what the deep future holds, whether it's five thousand years from now or fifty thousand years from now? On Earth? Yeah. Let's let's make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not going to be linear. There are going to be good times and bad. Um, I I would like to think that there can be a reconciling of utilitarianism with sort of deontological justice for the individual um you know uh, we can continue to fumble towards the right way of building society that maximizes both of those things which can contradict one another um you know i i really don't care about the technology the you know, driverless trucks and flying cars. You know, we have flying cars. They're helicopters. <laughs> Not that practical. And so we stopped using them. We have 3D travel. They're called tunnels and bridges. So, uh, you know, it, it's not going to look like anything what we picture it to be. But what I find important is more on a, on a ethical um, and spiritual plane is that you know people find meaning and they find meaning in a way that that uh is from a game theory perspective a win-win scenario is you know I, I think that's the best way to describe it i think i was unprepared for that question so <laughs> it's one you don't get very often which is why i like to throw throw people at the end of it is there anything else that you want after you die? Um, I don't know that I've lived enough to, to answer that. Um, I'm still pretty green in my own spirituality. I'm still learning. Um, I'm still trying to bring as, as open to mind as possible. Um, and so I, I'll probably be able to answer that question better tomorrow and 
hopefully the day after that. So, um, I don't know is the, is the answer, but I'd like to find out. It's a good one. And, uh, you know, maybe in 20, 30 years when you maybe have a grandkid kicking around, uh, maybe you'll have a better, <laughs> better response to that. Um, we can so, do another podcast then. Exactly. That's the, <laughs> that's the goal is, you know, you'll, you'll keep trading for a little while. I'll keep doing these podcasts for a little while. And we'll meet, we'll meet, uh, we'll meet up again. And, um, I'm really thankful for the, these two hours. Cause you know, we haven't really connected since high school and uh it's been uh i know it's been a very one-sided catching up <laughs> but i think it's been uh, it's been really lovely because it's like oh you've been you've been growing in your own way and it's been very very cool to catch up with you in this very structured manner um and so i want to thank you for that thank you for for taking the time having me on um i i think you would have been disappointed if i was my 14 year old self <laughs> <laughs> likewise that's with, for sure with kids <laughs> that's pretty terrifying so, so um i want to give you the floor the last few moments of the interview to address the audience directly whether it is yourself at the age of 60 listening to this uh, right before we re-interview or maybe it is uh, uh julian or maybe kid number two listening when they're a little bit more able to hear these stories and understand these uh these concepts um, or maybe it's just somebody who uh, resonates with your with your very intellectual and very practical approach to um, philosophy and, and a way of life. Um, the floor is yours. I think with probably the exception of sociopaths that everyone wants to make the world a better place, we can just never agree on how to make the world a better place. I think that in the abstract sense, we want the same things. We just can't agree on what those things are. Where I tend to approach life comes from a very cautious standpoint. I'd like to think that I'm extremely optimistic because I've seen miracles transpire in my life. The fact that you and I are speaking to each other in this manner from miles and miles apart um, is a miracle. It's something that we couldn't have thought of back when we were playing StarCraft in the basement. <laughs> but life doesn't always just get better. Life can get much, much worse. Unfathomably worse. And, it, you know, you can open any history book recent history books and see just how quickly the world around you can deteriorate and literally become hell. I also think that life is far more complex and dynamic than any one person can make it out. Looking at the big world day to day in my job and trying to make sense of it, you do realize just how complex and dynamic everything is you realize how much static and noise there is and and you also realize that the patterns that you see occur for a reason because to some extent or another for the time being in the current paradigm they work 
They might not have worked yesterday. They might not work tomorrow, but in some crude way they work. And so I tend to be extremely cautious in life when I think about making changes. I think that because no one can understand every aspect of something, it's very hard to put a lot of certainty on what the outcomes of those changes may be. And so I think the best way to work towards progress is through discourse, is through getting different perspectives, is through speaking with people who don't see the world the way you do, who don't see the world um, how you would like to, and who can look at the same thing and see something completely different. I think that's necessary if you are to develop and grow and to figure out where your own understandings are failures, where your model of reality is missing something or can't explain something, it's absolutely necessary then to, to speak with, with people who think differently than you. And uh, I hope that people do that more. And I hope that, um, you know, I hope that people embrace one another through their disagreements um, in ways that allow them to do that more. And I think what we're seeing in the world today is that's occurring less and less. Um, I have a, another friend from high school who politically is extremely different than I am. And I've gone through great lengths to understand her philosophy um, as she sees the world. I've done a ton of reading to, to wrap my head around it so that we can have the kinds of conversations within a mutual framework. And I'm worried that fewer and fewer people can do that, can keep their friendship, even though you see the world totally differently. And something gets lost when that happens. So reach out to your neighbors and uh, especially the ones you disagree with and find a way to agree to disagree, but also find a way to listen to each other and at least understand why it is that you disagree in the first place. That's good how we stuff. make a better world. Very good stuff. Thank you so much, Nico. Uh, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you again. Uh, had a great time and uh you know we should stay in touch more absolutely i agree this has been nico watts on death